On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about an immunization passport. Is that something you're comfortable with? That in order to go out to restaurants or the theater or anywhere, work, you may have to now carry a passport or have something on your phone saying you got the vaccine. I mean, I think we all want people to get the vaccine, but are we comfortable going that far? We're going to talk about the newest Olympic sport, which is breakdancing. Yes, the IOC has officially lost its mind. We will talk about it. And, and, and Colin Mockery, star of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And a variety of other things. One of Canada's funniest people joins us. You will definitely want to stick around for this one. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. This week during one of those daily one o'clock in the afternoon press conferences. If you listen to the Scott Thompson show regularly, you are very familiar with them. Uh, during one of those press conferences in the afternoon with the premier and selected cabinet ministers, we heard health minister Christine Elliott talking about vaccinations. And in that discussion, she mentioned something that perked up a lot of ears. Now, some people didn't catch it right away. Others, it's taken a few hours to really sort of go, hmm. Uh, it was the idea of an immunity passport, basically proof that you have received the vaccine. Now, it wasn't so much the that part or the idea that we want people to get the vaccine that caught people's attention. It was the consequences that you might be facing if you don't have it. Now, I want to play her answer. Take a listen to her answer. Listen very carefully to what Christine Elliott had to say yesterday. Because that's going to be really important for people to have for travel purposes, perhaps for work purposes, for going to theaters or cinemas or any other places where people will be in closer physical contact uh, when we get through the worst of the pandemic. So, yes, that, that will be essential for people to have that. You might need to have this passport, this theoretical, although maybe that's too soft a word, passport to travel, to go to theaters, to go to restaurants, to go to your house, even to go to work. I want to bring in Michael Bryant. He's the executive director and general counsel with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. He's also, you probably know him, former attorney general of Ontario. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, when I say that this sounds like you will need this, again, theoretically, potentially, but it sounds like they're leaning that way to almost do anything. Is that how you interpret where this is going? Well, one of the problems is... Uh that uh, this is something spoken from the podium, but it's not, you know, we, we're a democracy of laws. We're not a democracy of, uh, of podiums. So until we see the law that authorizes the creation of this passport, uh, it's difficult for us to speculate. But let, let's assume that the Ontario government uses their existing legislation to pass an executive order to kick, create this passport, leaving aside the practical issues, uh, like if it's actually a passport or something like it, they cost money. And it, I don't know about you, but I, I've had difficulty sometimes in terms of getting a passport in a timely way. And so, so if it's not something authentic and reliable and it's easily uh, faked, then, you know, it's not going to be, if it, if it ends up just being a card or something that you can do on Adobe uh, Photoshop, mm. that's no good. So leaving us, but let's just put that aside. The problem is this, is it stratifies our population into two groups of people. And and it's it's like a scarlet letter for those unfortunate people who may not be able 
to be inoculated because, you know, their doctors have told them that they're going to have an allergic reaction or, you know, they, they the doc, their own doctors know that they will have a reaction to this. And then you end up having a group of haves and have-nots, you know, the, the inoculated and the ininoculated. And that information, that private health information about us, We've, we've never required people to wear that on their sleeve. And that's really the problem. It doesn't have anything to do with achieving herd immunity or, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with getting people inoculated. You know, all of that is, you know, the government is understandably making the case for that. But if we're actually um, making it voluntary, which the government is doing, because by law you couldn't require that people have a needle stuck in their arm against their against their wishes. Um, then you can't say it's voluntary. But you know, if you don't get it, then you're not going to be able to do anything or go anywhere. Right. Right. I mean, we look. We have we have a, the ongoing debate, the debate of debates, if you want mm-hmm. to put it that way, in our society is the abortion debate, and mm-hmm. the reason it's such a volatile debate is because. People say, well, you can't make me do something with my body that I don't want to do. Well, this mm-hmm. to me would be, I understand that, you know, it's a, it's a, a pandemic and we don't want to make other people sick, but you're talking in some ways, in some ways about a similar thing that would require you to do something with, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer just for the record for anyone listening, mm-hmm. but, but it would require you to put something in your body. And if you don't, there are going to be serious repercussions if this was followed through with. Now, in public schools, we do have a law in Ontario that requires that if you're going to attend a public school, you need to provide an immunization record. And if you weren't able to get immunized, and there's a, 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 a you know either a medical reason or or some uh, reason for which there is an exception that's carved out in the law, okay, yeah, that's required. But that's quite different than telling a a student don't forget to bring your passport to school you got to show it to get into the classroom so that every all the students know who's immunized and who aren't there are going to be areas and places where uh you know if you're going to work there if you're going to work in a long-term care home then one is going to uh in all likelihood be uh, immunized but if somebody working in a long-term care home isn't able to get immunized, should we damn them for their disability, or should mm. we, or should they be, you know, required to continue to wear the hazmat suit until further notice? Uh, but that's that group of people. Uh, what, what we're concerned about at Canadian Civil Liberties Association are the marginalized folks who will end up being the last to get it. You know, homeless, mentally ill poor people, people for whom English is not their first language, they may eventually get immunized, but they are not going to be in the privileged group of early immunized. So not only do they get punished for not, you know, getting immunized early on, but they get uh, punished for not being part of that privileged group that is immunized by not getting their immunity passport. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We do right now in Hamilton, and I know it's a similar bylaw to many other cities in the in the province. We have this bylaw that says you have to wear a mask in public unless you announce that you have a condition that precludes you from wearing one. And the only proof you have to give of your condition is saying you have a condition. W- would the same thing ultimately or could the same thing ultimately not apply 
if we had a vaccine or do you think it would be a far more serious, far more, far stronger law around this whole thing with the vaccines? Yeah, you know, I, I understand the similarities. The big difference is that, you know, uh, uh, getting inoculated uh, is quite different than just putting on a mask. Um, the reason why wearing a mask is not a big civil liberties issue is because the infringement on people's liberties are, are quite minimal. It's a minimal uh, ask of somebody's freedom to have to put on a mask whether they want to or not. On the other hand, having someone uh, get inoculated is a bigger ask. And moreover, if you're wearing a mask, uh, that doesn't tell you important things about your, um, your, your, your private uh, health information. If you're not wearing a mask, that doesn't really tell you a lot about somebody's private health information. The vast majority of people actually do wear the masks when they're inside. So this is a so this is different. Also, uh, the requirement is uh, with respect to wearing a mask in particular places where infection rates are high. Whereas uh, the, the the matter of um, uh, getting a vaccine, it's different in that just because you're vaccinated doesn't actually mean you're immune. It doesn't mean that you're not still contagious. We don't know that yet. It's, you know, I, as I understand it, the reason we're getting vaccinated is because if you get it to a certain point, there's nowhere for the virus to go. And that's quite different than uh, requiring that people show that they've been vaccinated, because then there's the suggestion, oh, well, they're clean. They don't need to wear a mask. I'm guessing, in fact, that the direction is going to be that for, for a period of time after people get vaccinated, we're still going to be wearing masks and we're still going to be social distancing until they know beyond the criminal, sorry, criminal trials, beyond the clinical trials, what the results are. But either way, um, there's not um, a, while there is stigma not wearing a mask in these places, it's not the same kind of stigma that would attach to those who don't have one of these immunity passports versus those who do. And, you know, my concern is that unlike, say, the mask requirement. So, you know, I, if somebody's homeless, if somebody's poor, if somebody's just forgetful and they show up at a store and they don't have a mask, the store will just give them a mask. They'll give them one. Well, if I show up at a store and I don't have an immunity passport, they can't just give me one. And so the people who aren't going to have immunity passports, they're, they're going to inevitably be the most vulnerable. And that's where this double-barreled unfairness kicks in. Not only And, and to that point, right. and if I can jump in for one Please. second, no, to that point, I just watched something in the last, it was online, so I don't know when it was on NBC News, but very recently, and they're talking about immunity passports in the States, but theirs is an app. It's called Clear or Clearly or something like that, where it's on your phone mm-hmm. and so not only does it follow you and, and we all get, you know, a little skittish about what are those apps picking up? I know when they did the, the federal government one, everyone was like, well, is it really not following us? You know, we mm-hmm. took some convincing, but to your point, you know, how many homeless people have a phone that they can put an app on or, or how many people who are impoverished don't have a phone, then what? That's right. It's also worthwhile to note that in the United Kingdom where, you know, everyone is now getting vaccinated, they've already started. The Minister of Health has clearly said, we are not going to have immunity passports 
And we aren't going to have them because, and these are his words, they're discriminatory and they're wrong. So one country has decided that they have no place in, in their country. In the U.S., that app that you're referring to, I know which one, it starts with a C, and I'm, I'm just looking for it now. But the, the app that you're referring to, that app applies to people who are trying to travel you know, on airplanes and go in and out of other countries. And that requirement that you might need to enter into a sovereign country you know, besides the app, you may also need a visa or a green card or, you know, there's always it, it's, a, it's a different issue allowing someone into the country. But this creates another issue for us in Ontario. What if Ontario has this requirement, but other provinces don't? You know, my daughter is at Quebec in Quebec. She's at school um, there. And uh, let, let's assume she gets inoculated there, but she's not going to be able to get an Ontario immunity passport. Does that mean she can't come and use services in Ontario, hmm. even though uh, she's a Canadian. Um, so complicated. It, look, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating one and, yeah. and a little bit frightening, to be honest, but it really, yeah. um, soon as soon as it was thrown out there by Christine yeah. Elliott yesterday, as I said, a lot of people with, uh, with a lot of thoughts. Uh, Michael Bryant, Executive Director and General Counsel with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for talking about this Thank today. Thank you very much. We will take a break. Something to ponder, though. Something to ponder. Are you comfortable with that idea? We want people to get vaccinated. We want people to, we want to get rid of this virus. But are you comfortable with the idea of not being able to even go to work if for some reason you're not? Maybe you are. I just worry because you want to know one little secret? Governments that take away liberties never give them back. And so it may be with good reason that we want to do some of this stuff, but you got to be very careful what you're willing to give up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So the International Olympic Committee has announced new sports, a new sport for Paris, three new sports for Tokyo, but the one in Paris coming up in 2024. Really, I mean, my eyes rolled back so hard in my head, I got eye whiplash. That, that's how hard they will. I want to bring in Steve Foxcroft, longtime sports commentator, Sideline official in the NFL. That's a pretty good thing to have on your resume. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? Well, okay. So, Steve, I saw this story today, and I had to look twice to make sure it wasn't a story from The Onion or Beaverton or some sort of joke website. Because the International Olympic Committee has decided that in 2024 in Paris, breakdancing is now a metal sport. Well, I'll tell you what. In grade 8, 9, and 10, I was an Olympian then. Yeah, well, you were the, the, the king of Beat Street, the king of the beat. We can hear you rocking from across the street. Yes, I, I'm. that's an early, early, way back machine days for breakdancing. Come on, Steve, look, they're also cutting the number of boxing events and weightlifting events and a bunch of actual sports for breakdancing. And while breakdancing may be fine to watch and great to participate in, there is no possible definition under which you could categorize it as a sport and the judging, we are just asking for another fiasco. This is the stupidest thing. And the IOC is legendary for being stupid. This is, this is taking their stupidity and giving it a testosterone boost. That is certainly true. And wow, I was just heading to the closet to get my parachute pants out. Oh. Scott, but you, you got me doing a reverse there because I don't think that's necessary, but you're right about the judging, though, right? Because it's already a fiasco. And 
where was it? Was it synchronized swimming or something where one of the Blue Jays' wives did well over the Ed, Canadian Ed girl? Sprague, yes, Sprague's Ed Sprague's wife. wife. Remember? Yeah, she was an American. She she finished second yeah. to uh, Carolyn Waldo and uh, Sylvie Frechette in the very yeah. first. How about that for throwing names out there? That was uh, well done. Yep. Well but then, done. But then the Olympics decided, you know what? Synchronized swimming as a sport, as an Olympic sport, isn't goofy enough. Let's have solo synchronized swimming. How do you even do, as long as your arms are moving in tandem, like it's, it doesn't even make sense. Well, my synchronized swimming would be like a synchronized diving or something like that, which they do have the synchronized diving. Yes, they do. But with when you just said arms flailing and all that, that's me off the three meter springboard right there. <laughs> so I could, I, I think I'm an, I'm an Olympic, I'm a two sport Olympian so far in this conversation. But who? Okay. First of all, was there a a worldwide cry and demand and hue and call for breakdancing? I mean, break, look, again, to me, breakdancing kind of, I know people still do it, but that was a thing from the 80s. If it was ever going to be in the Olympics, it was in the 1980s. Now, who judges this stuff? Who are we? Are we going to have a huge contingent of breakdancing teams coming from the Middle East and Africa? You know, or is this another one of those events that, well, we're just going to guarantee that we get TV ratings in the States so they can finish first, second, and third? Like, it's stupid. Well, yeah, Dick Ebersol is probably behind it. But what about this? What about if Kanye West runs the stage, the metal podium, <laughs> and says, no, 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 you're not the winner. You don't deserve it. Let's give it to this person. That, I, that's what it's setting it up for. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, look, if you can have breakdancing as an Olympic sport, I'm proposing and I'm going to start a movement that 20 minute workout becomes an Olympic sport. <laughs> that wasn't, there you go. That was an Olympic sport for me when I was younger as well. City TV, Mark Daly telling us it's everywhere. And that was their, uh, one of their flagships other than speakers corners, the 20 yeah, workout. I, yeah. Three, three aerobic exercisers on a revolving turntable in positions that you couldn't have on the TV. If mom or dad walked into the room that, you know, that could be a big draw these days, Oh my God. but it makes as much sense as an Olympic sport as breakdancing does. We might as well have that, the 20 minute workout, uh, sport and, uh, give out medals and so on for it and have different categories and divisions and all that. But you're right about the breakdancing because I think that's passe now too, right? Like who does it anymore? Well, there are people, but I mean, okay, so that's for 2024. Also coming up for Tokyo in the next Olympics, whenever next summer, we presume, uh, they will have skateboarding, sport climbing, and surfing. So two things on this one. First of all, skateboarding, again, if it's not just a, like I'm fine with skateboarding as a downhill skateboarding race, like full on mayhem, people wiping out and road rash and everything. That would be cool. But that's not what I don't think they're doing. Uh, rock climbing, sport climbing. Okay, you can at least have it as a race. So there's a timing element. But surfing, um, when they hold the Olympics in Paris, is there a huge body of water with gigantic breakers that I'm missing in Paris? How do you do surfing in Paris? Well, I, yeah, that's going to be a tough one. They might have to re-award the Olympic sites, right? And and Honolulu will become the lead candidate <laughs> for the uh, for the next Olympics, and and then we'll have the luau going and everything like that too. But you know, I like your idea though with the the climbing and the skateboarding. Is it if it's a timed event and not a judged event, then I'm kind of okay with it. And and I remember I go back to my skateboard days. I did it both on aluminum wheels. 
and then rubber wheels when I upgraded my skateboard. Kind of like roller skating, too. I had the aluminum wheels that just clipped onto the bottom of my sneakers. Remember those kind? I do. Well, why not just have then... Steve, why not just have roller skating? And I don't mean, I don't mean roller blading like racing. Why not have roller skating where they put on some sort of, you know, seventies Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? And you do the four wheel thing with the crossovers back and forth and wear super tight pants. That could work. Right. Why not? And then you, you do the backwards skate, you do the reverse skate, all that kind of stuff. Cause that's what I was going to say. I graduated from the kind that clipped onto my sneakers to the boot kind of, of roller skate. And I, I felt pretty good around the roller gardens those days. I could see you, and you could be an Olympian in a third sport if you could do the deep knee bend with the one leg sticking straight out. If you can do that move, you could be a silver medalist at least in the Olympics. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Steve, I was just saying to Ben during the break, Ben back at the studio, I mean, this is clearly an attempt to bring in a younger audience. But I'm not sure that breakdancing is for the younger audience anymore. If you really want a young audience, they should have gone with something like eSports, which is also kind of stupid for the Olympics. But nonetheless, you would draw a younger audience. It would definitely draw a younger audience. And it would probably be easy to cover too, right? Because they would just show the good graphics and everything on there. And I think they do okay. You know, during the break, I filled out my application to be an IOC <laughs> member. I think I think we got a chance there, Scott. Like, you better fill out yours too because uh, – we could root, I'm too we long could and gangly, too long and gangly for breakdancing. And besides the other thing is I it, show me the Olympic sport that is purely judged. And that's what this will be. That is purely judged. Show me the Olympic sport that falls under that category that has not almost immediately ended up in a fiasco with some sort of, some sort of judging controversy. Everyone. Everyone with judges. That's what I mean. Would, Everyone. Would, it's all fiasco. Boxing, of course, is, is a lead one, but. I go back. I say if we do break dancing, then Christine Bab Sprague is that's the girl's name, right? Who won it? I think Ed so. Sprague, yep. Right? She has to be the lead judge uh, on the uh, break dancing event. Well, I'll you know has, look the judges. The, you know the judges, Steve. All the judges. The only criteria to be a break dancing judge is probably is you're going to be stoned. <laughs> true. That's very true. You know. Yeah. So are you saying that? Trudeau, because he legalized it, he could probably be the lead judge. I will leave that entirely to the discretion of the audience to make that call. Uh, let me move on to something really quickly for the couple minutes we have left here. Or something else that came up this week that I was, um, I want to hear your opinion on this. The Lou Marsh Award uh, winner came out. The Canadian Athlete of the Year was announced yesterday. The Lou Marsh Award is the premier award. I mean, the Canadian press does one, but everyone sees the Lou Marsh Trophy as the definitive Canadian Athlete of the Year. Third time ever they had a tie. This one was Alfonso Davies, who is uh, a left back with Bayern Munich, had an unbelievable season, one of the greatest seasons by a Canadian soccer player ever. The other one is Kansas City Chiefs offensive lineman Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who was rewarded in a lot of ways for not playing sports. He decided not to play this year because he's also a doctor as well as being a football player and decided to sit out this season to help with COVID, which I find, Steve, I find this to be inspiring. I find this to be something we should applaud. I find this to be something that I am grateful for, that people would do this. But I find this to be a complete whiff then on choosing him to be the athlete of the year when his claim to fame is not doing anything athletic for the most part. 
and he's more of a news story than an athlete of the year. And you forgot to mention the initials after his name because you could put RG for right guard and MD for medical yeah. doctor, right? Yeah. He's got the longest name of an award winner, that's for sure, with his credentials and letters after his name. But yeah, he's a newsmaker rather than an athlete of the year, especially representing our whole country and all that. But he did great things. And yes, you know, yes, I love what he did. I love what he did. And there are other awards. I mean, you may want to give him the Order of Canada this year for doing something like that or other other things. But I just, you know, and I don't want to be the downer or the spoil sport or whatever. But, you know, we give awards for certain things. And I look at the other athletes. I mean, I thought Jamal Murray, a basketball player, NBA player, should have also been in the mix and probably should have finished, well, definitely in my mind, should have finished ahead of Duvernay Tardif because it's a sports award. But yet somehow now we seem, we are only capable, and this is with a problem I have, we are only capable now, Steve, of giving awards that come with tinkling piano keys and make us feel. We have to feel. We can't just give an award because someone earns it or deserves it. We have to feel. And that, that to me, it, it misses the point of what this award is. And he protected a guy who could get an Athlete of the Year award. And that's Patrick Mahomes, right? Yep. Like, not a Canadian yep. Athlete of the Year award, but he's got to be in the running for the American Athlete of the Year award, uh, uh, the SB award for for that. But he protected that guy. And, you know, let's throw in the local flavor with Kia Nurse, too. Like, she's going to be a candidate now for, for a lot of years, too, for her athletic prowess, for what she does on the court. You know, Jamal Murray, you mentioned, a great candidate as well, who put the Denver Nuggets on his back in one, one series, advanced through the playoffs before losing to the champs. So I agree with you. Great news story. Love what he does. Very proud of him. Look up to him. What a role model. But not necessarily the Lou Marsh Award. No, 100%. And someone, and a couple people have gone on Twitter and said, uh, what, what about Terry Fox? He won it. And my argument to that is, yes, Terry Fox did things that were considered in some similar way humanitarian, obviously, but he also ran 146 consecutive marathons on one leg, much of it with tumors in his lungs. I think that's athletic. That's very athletic. And, you know, a lot of us, I at the age of 40, when I turned 40, which was a long time ago, I said one of my goals, my bucket list things was I wanted to complete a marathon. Did you? And I did. I got through it. It was in Chicago, so it was nice and flat. So I got through it. But like, not a not. What did you? How many in a row? How many? One hundred and forty-six. One hundred and forty-six in a row. Anyway, I love as you say. I love what I love what Tardif uh, do want Tardif did, but uh, j- not for that. Other awards. Give him all the other awards you want. Not that one. Anyway, Steve Foxcroft, thank you so much for doing this today. Go practice your breakdancing. I can't wait to see you do it. Put a video up online or something. I want want to see those. I got parachute pants. I got to take them out a few notches, but I'll get them fitted. (laughs) If you've got to take out parachute pants, you've put on weight, my friend. (laughs) Well, that's my my role, man. You know me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have now been in um, COVID pandemic quarantine-ish, lockdown-ish, not normal life, whatever you want to call it for seven months, eight months, nine months, I don't know, March. We need a good laugh around now. Everybody needs a good laugh around now. And my next guest is working on that. Uh, Colin Mockery is joining with Brad Sherwood, another guy that you would know from Whose Line Is It Anyway? 
Uh, they've created a show called Stream of Consciousness. It's a live improv set that you can watch over Zoom. You can tune into it Sunday at 7 and then next Saturday at 8 and a bunch of other times. I'll give you the website in a minute uh, to watch this. It's audience participation. Whose line is it anyway, basically? which is great because that's what they do. Uh, I am so excited to have Colin Mockery, who is one of those two stars of that, join us now. Uh, by the way, Colin Mockery, the 11th most famous person named Colin in the world, according to Ranker.com. I don't know if that gives you great joy, Colin, or if that gives you great concern that you only come in at number 11 for most famous Collins. I'm, I'm shocked. I am... Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know the two people who were ahead and before or behind you and, and ahead of you. So I, I think they've really messed this one up. You should be much higher than 11. Obviously, this was uh, a list started by Ryan Stiles. There's been a lot of <laughs> hostility. Whatever. <laughs> I must ask you, just before we took the break for the news and came on for this hour, we were talking about a movie that apparently it's a real movie that's been produced and is going to be on Lifetime Channel this Sunday. It's kind of one of those Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, it's called A Recipe for Seduction. And it's yeah. this, it's a love story involving Colonel Sanders as a young yeah. man. I As soon as I heard this, I thought, I can only imagine what Colin Mockery would have done if this was a premise that he had to handle on one of your shows. I, at, at first, I thought, oh, it, it, this must be a parody. <laughs> and then when I saw a trailer, I said, oh, no, it's not good enough to be a parody. This is a real thing. <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm almost intrigued enough to, to watch it. But, because you know, I grew up with, you know, Colonel Sanders as Colonel Sanders. To imagine him as a young stud spreading his herbs and spices, I, I just can't <laughs> imagine. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I want to envision anybody spreading herbs and spices, quite frankly. But that's... Um, you know, it's a thought, but again, I'm, I'm wondering if, if that had been something thrown to you in one of your, whose line is it anyway, sketches or, or even on the stream of consciousness, would that be something you would latch onto with glee or would you go, how the world do I do that? Absolutely latch on. Absolutely. <laughs> Cause it's so ridiculous. I think we could have a lot of fun with it. And believe me, who is more desirable than Colonel Sanders? Even as an older gentleman, he had that certain something where you thought, oh, I'd like to cover him in batter. <laughs> well, and I don't know if you know this, I assume you did, but near the end of his life, he lived in Mississauga. I did you know that? I did not know that. Colonel Sanders finished his life. He, he ended up his life living in a little home in Mississauga. It's a true story. Wow. I, well, uh, thank you for that fact. I, I did <laughs> not know that. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but it's, you know, it's something to ruminate over later in the night when you're lying in bed oh. and you're thinking, wow, there we go. Well, I could do, I could do, you know, the later years. Uh, Colonel Sanders, the Canadian edition. Yeah. Desire for desire, but not quite getting it. <laughs> um, you, you know, what's amazing to me as, as we were talking, I was thinking about this show, you're doing stream of consciousness and everybody knows you from whose line is it every way and everything and everything else. Did I, I've read, were you really cut twice from auditions for whose line is it anyway? You didn't make the cut twice. Is that true? Um, I I didn't make the cut once, and then it just got exaggerated. I've heard I, I didn't make it three times, which um, I, I didn't make it the first time. I managed to make it the second time. And then I think what people got confused about was after my first show, uh, I mean, I, I looking back at it, I can honestly say I sucked. So <laughs> I, I think... Um, I find I, that hard to believe. 
Oh, I know we all do. Maybe the other 10 Collins might jump on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, but it was only because of Ryan who um, they, they started to shoot some shows in New York, the British um, version. And Ryan said, give Colin another chance. And, you know, Ryan and I had been already at that point. We grew up together, so we worked forever. And they put us together, and then it just sort of built from there. So, um, yeah, but there was only one audition that I didn't get. What What is the magic of it? Because, I mean, there, look, there is a magic, and 99.999% and of people in the world could not do what you do. And you know that, and that's a pat on the back, but it's the truth as well. What is the magic? How does it work when it works? Well, I mean, a lot of different ingredients go into it. Like, um, I mean, the people on Whose Line are amazing and great people to work with. So that takes like 50% of any kind of pressure away. And part of it is just having confidence that you can walk out on stage with nothing and just have enough trust in yourself and the people you're working with that something's going to come to you. Um, you know, for all of us, it's, it's it's exciting and I'm, i mean i've been doing this for almost 40 years now and it's still as much fun there's never a time i walk on stage going okay everything i know exactly what's going to happen tonight no every night is a crapshoot and it just um basically it's survival just trying yeah. to survive you say exciting i would bet that most actors would describe it not as exciting but as terrifying because there's an empty chasm below you if it if it bombs there is nothing there to prop you up that's true but unlike stand up when you bomb an improv you're taking friends with you so it's a nice feeling <laughs> Well, there must have been, I mean, you said your first one was awful. There must have been others along the way where you've had moments where you've stood on that stage with a glassy eyed look and gone, well, that just was awful. I can't imagine it's happened often, but has it? It's happened, uh, you know, when you go out there, you've got a 50-50 chance at best. And there there was one show where Brad Sherwood, uh, Ryan Stiles and I did um, at the Laugh Factory in... Um, Los Angeles. It was so bad. The show was over. Each of us just left the stage, got into our cars, and didn't talk to each other for two weeks because it was just so horrendous. What categorizes horrendous? Because if it's a stand-up, nobody laughs. I suppose that may be part of it. But how do you how do you determine if it's gone really well or really horribly? I think this is a good sign when you hear during one of your sketches. Someone in the audience go, God, give me a crowbar. (laughs) Yeah, but you know what? You're doing this thing now that's online. And and one of the things about any stand-up comedian, which I've not done, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like I have, but you hear from comedians. And I have to believe in what you do with improv. There's so much of it that is riding on the feedback from the crowd and getting that confidence that what you're doing is clicking. How do you do that when when you don't have that? Yeah, this has been our biggest um, sort of learning curve and realizing how important the audience is. I mean, not only we get all the suggestions from them for our scenes, but they, too, uh, dictate the the pace of the show. They can sort of indicate, okay, they're not into this kind of humor. Let's try this. Um, With this show, it's like, okay, we just we truly have to believe in each other and think, okay, we're funny. Let's just do it. And, And so far, it's worked out. 
Let me ask you a couple things. I, when I mentioned to a couple people you were coming on, there were a couple questions that almost everybody had, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a million, these questions a million times, but nonetheless, it's, it's of endless fascination to people. And mostly people find it impossible to believe that you truly are walking onto the stage with nothing. They, they, they just can't believe you don't have some heads up ahead of time of what's coming. Is it really walking out there with a blank slate? It, it is. I mean, we know um, what games we're playing and that's it. But as I say, every scene starts with a suggestion from the audience. Um, every, what I love about, I mean, it's sort of a backhanded compliment in some way where people say, oh, it, it's like when we do really well, they go, oh, you must have written that. When we suck, they go, boy, that was improvised. So there's really, <laughs> there's no way you can win. Or, or every way you can win. Cause that's, that, I mean, that, again, if that, that's, if they are accusing you of making it up ahead of time, which I kind of just did in a roundabout way. I mean, that is the highest compliment you could possibly get. I would think that it is. That you, it is. And I, I always tell people, you know what you should do at our uh, shows, um, transcribe the scenes and then afterwards, look at them and see if they make any sense. <laughs> they, they don't. It's just because at that time, with that suggestion, what we were doing, it all kind of made some sense and was funny. But if you tried to do it as a sketch, it would fail miserably because it, it truly doesn't make sense most of the time. Have you ever, you must have at times said something in the moment that caught even you by surprise that that popped out of your mouth. There have been times, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the beauty of improv is everyone is surprised. The audience, us. There's just, you know, we can control a little better because we have to, we have to. But yeah, there have been times where you say something, you go, oh. <laughs> and there's sometimes you say something that you think, oh, this is, um, <laughs> you, there's a, a double meaning that you didn't realize as you say it. Um, so all of a sudden it becomes an incredibly sexual joke that you thought, no, I was just saying something nice about that dog. It's, uh, so that's, <laughs> That's those times where you're like a, a, a few seconds behind the audience are kind of interesting <laughs> where you go, Oh, what? Oh yeah. That, I guess that is funny, but I didn't mean that. Well, I, I was watching a few, a bunch of stuff last night as I was thinking about talking to you the night before. And, and one of the scenes, and, and again, it's one of those ones I thought there's no way he even realized this was coming out of his mouth at the moment that the, the one you didn't, people can look it up on YouTube. It's everywhere. Uh, the answer about the Arctic turn was was just one of the most ridiculous yeah. and most hilarious things ever. And I can't believe you walked onto the stage that day thinking at some point I'm going to throw an Arctic turn as an answer. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, they have, there's this theory that when um, you're in a dangerous situation and your life flashes before your very eyes, <laughs> because your brain is downloading all the information you've ever had in your life, to see if there's something that will help you out of this particular particular situation. And I think that's what happens with improv sometimes. I know nothing about the Arctic turn. I didn't even know <laughs> I knew what the, the words Arctic turn, but it was something I must have read or doing a crossword and it came out. And I, I find talking to some of the other improvisers, it's like, oh yeah, there's sometimes you make a reference and you go, where did that come from? Um, and as you're watching the audience Google it to figure out what it was you said, it, it's um, it's fascinating. There has to be though, in, in a serious way, sort of not not you know not Sammy Maudlin in all seriousness as a comic, but in, I mean somewhat seriously, 
there has to be amazing pressure on you because of this, um, because of what you do and how you do it. I believe in, and I've got a little personal thing here that there must be a belief that you can be funny at all times, anytime. And, you, and you'll obviously not know this, but many years ago, my wife, my family and I were flying home from Orlando from a trip to Disney world. And it turns out you and your family plopped in the seats in the Orlando airport, right in front of us. You'd been doing, I think a Disney movie in Disney world. Um, oh yeah. And you sat there, I didn't say anything, but people started coming up to you and, you know, they recognize you from whose line is it anyway. And it was all good. And you were very generous with all these people until the guy came up and sort of thrust his phone in your face and said, say something funny to my wife. And I thought that's got to be just brutal at times that you're the guy who is supposed to be able to just on a dime be hilarious to everybody at all times. Yeah. It, yeah, it, I mean, it is hard because, you know, I'm not a joke teller. I can't just throw jokes out there. I, I work with other improvisers. So when somebody does that, it's, my first impulse is just to be incredibly rude <laughs> in the video <laughs> to the person who asked me to do this. Uh, but I have to say, it's, it's fairly rare. I, I have to say, like, 99% of the people are always um, lovely you know, and I'm, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm not like playing Hannibal Lecter or something. Um, <laughs> That's true. You know, people feel that uh, from whose line that they know us because we're like ver- TV versions of ourselves. I mean, we're not exactly like that. My my uh, my wife calls uh, the guy on whose line the other because it's nothing like me in real life. And it's um, I mean, the other guys are pretty much exactly what you see. But, um, <laughs> you know, the I'm audience sure. really feels that they know us. And a lot of them, you know, have grown up with us. It's like we're all some weird version of Mr. Rogers to them. So they feel that they, they really know us. Well, I mean, it's such a specific, and we only have a minute or so left here. It's such a specific talent, though. It's a great talent. It's an unbelievable talent, but it's so specific. Had, had improv not come along, had you not stumbled into it? What would Colin Mockery have done with his life? What, what other skills do you have that you could have applied and made a living doing? See, that's the thing. I, I have no other skills. And I, I'm not being modest. I'm, I'm not being humble. I have nothing. I, I, I have absolutely nothing. I, I, I look back and every day I go, I'm w- working, doing a job that didn't exist when I was growing up. And it's the fact uh, that a show came along that showcased the one thing I can do and gave me a career. I, 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 I yeah, I, I truly have nothing. I mean, I like to cook, but I don't like people, so I wouldn't open a restaurant. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. I, I, I truly gigolo, but I think my expiry date's way past now. I yeah. don't know what I can do. Yeah, you know, everyone's got a predilection. You know, it could still work. You never know. Because I do, I mean, I do understand that your first ever movie was with Molly Ringwald. And I'm just assuming you were the love interest. No, no. I I, uh, I fought for it, but no. Instead, I was the guy who uh, kidnapped her to take her to the villain. (laughs) What was the movie called? uh, Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone in 3D. (laughs) In 3D, of course. Yeah. Yes, well. It is, um, and a uh, true fact directed by, um, a man who had one eye. Come so on. It was, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> there were, there were many problems with that. Show, that movie. 
I saw a very brief clip of it, but I'm going to have to try and look it up. It's got to be on DVD somewhere. Oh, yeah. Or VHS. If I had longer, I'd tell you a story. Feel free if you wish. I'll tell you this story. This was one of my favorite Hollywood stories. This, we shot it in Vancouver. Uh, it was like 1980. So there wasn't a big film industry at that point in Vancouver. So there's a point where the, uh, Molly Ringwald and Peter Strauss, who are the heroes, go into this cave, and um, there's bat people hanging upside down who start to attack them. And it's in 3D, so you know a lot of hands are coming out and stuff. So, of course... Uh, Vancouver didn't have the facility to have all the back costumes, so they had to call down to L.A. Uh, Ken crates show up, and I, I'm, I just count my blessings that I was there when this happened. They opened up the crate, and it was 10 crates of fat suits. So when you watch the movie, they go into a cave with these fat people hanging upside down to attack them. Well, you know, it makes it more interesting, especially for a one-eyed director. <laughs> it does. It really does. The um, the online thing, if you want to watch Colin, and I mean, honestly, who wouldn't want to watch Colin with Brad Sherwood, who again, you would know certainly from whose line is it anyway. It's called Stream of Consciousness. Uh, you can watch it. It's through Zoom. You can buy a ticket. It's on this weekend. It's on next weekend. It goes on a bunch of times between now and about the middle of January. Uh, go to PassportShows.com. Or just type in stream of consciousness, Colin Mockery, you will find it there. It's probably a lot quicker than me giving out the full email or web address, which is very long and you'll never remember. But Colin Mockery, stream of consciousness. Uh, listen, real treat to talk with you today. Love your work. So, so amazed always at what you can do. And uh, like so many other people, wish I could do it. But, you know, we just sit here and, um, and watch you and admire what you do. And I really appreciate the time today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you for my new Colonel Sanders fact. Please, you know what, Sun, uh, Saturday or Sunday this week? This week is, um, let's see, this week is Saturday, right? Uh, sure. For the show. Uh, this week is, no sorry, idea. Sunday. Sunday at seven this week. Hopefully Colonel Sanders as a love interest will will emerge at some point. There you go. Okay. As a Canadian <laughs> love interest. Colin Mockery, thank you so much. Really appreciate the time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate being on. Uh, honestly, one of... Canada's funny. We've had a lot of funny people that have emerged from this country. A lot of funny people. And you think of John Candy and Martin Short from right here in Hamilton and Dave Thomas and, and Joe Flaherty. And I mean, all the guys from SCTV and on and on and on. Colin Mockery is right up there. And the most amazing thing, and, and like I keep saying it because I, I, I am constantly in awe of this. I mean, I do this radio show and we don't script the radio show. We, we interview and we talk and we have conversations, but there is no expectation on me every night to be hilarious constantly. And more than that, not just to have the expectation to do it. You never watch Colin Mockery and think, oh, that wasn't funny. There may be a moment where it misses, but not very often. And there's something right afterwards. Colin Mockery is there. He is a genius. I, I mean that. And, and what a treat to talk to him. And again, uh, stream of consciousness is the name of the show. It's a zoom online thing. You can participate by watching it. Uh, look up Colin Mockery, M O C H R I E. If you want to know the right spelling, if you want to buy a ticket, it's on this weekend. It's on next weekend. Uh, all the times will be there. Fantastic stuff. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.